There are certain elemental things that are important in every culture in the world, and perhaps the most vital of them is food. People come together at the table. Cultures can be understood and transmitted through their food transitions. You know this, of course, because this is your life's work. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. We were on a bus trip. We were in a small van out to the outskirts of Aleppo. And as we were approaching the village, our van broke down. They were fixing the tire and I'm not really useful in this place, So I in, in this arena. So I decided I, I go walking around with my big DSLR camera, like a total tourist. And I start weaving in and out of pomegranate trees because that's their primary crop in Basuta. And I stumble across this pomegranate farmer who was like kneeled down and covering his harvest of pomegranates uh, with a burlap set with a burlap sheet to protect it from the elements. I snapped this picture, you know, of this farmer. And then when he heard my camera click, he turned around. And it was this very intense moment because I didn't know what his reaction was going to be. And it was fascinating. Before he asked me who I was, what my name is, what I was doing, before anything, before he even said a word, before he even said hello, he clearly recognized that I was not a local from my camera and my look of amazement. And he cracked open one of his pomegranates and he extended it to me. And that's how he started the conversation. This week, never count your food. Plastic tomatoes and the fear of God and owls. Join us on a journey from Baltimore, Maryland to Aleppo, Syria, and learning that food is much more than simple calories. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And that's what we call cultural exchange. Yes. My name's Tony Tahan. I'm originally, I was born in Venezuela. I grew up in Miami, went to school in upstate New York. I did a Fulbright research grant in Aleppo, Syria, where I was studying food traditions in three contexts, at homes, in restaurants, and in the streets. I come from a family of immigrants. My grandparents uh, moved from Syria to Venezuela in the 1950s. My parents grew up in Venezuela, but like the children of most immigrant families, they, through some social engineering, (laughs) met each other. We moved to the U.S. when I was four. Food for me has always been a window into my heritage. It was the way I connected. It was like a tangible way that I connected with uh, my identity. But I never knew that food was anything I could study about. I always enjoyed it. In fact, my mom shares stories that even before I knew how to form sentences, I would wake up in my crib asking for chicha, which is this like Venezuelan rice and milk uh, drink that's like similar to horchata. My mom says I loved my stomach (laughs) growing up. 
there was this open-ended research grant and I jokingly said, wouldn't it be interesting if somebody used this grant to study food? But my advisor said, you know, there's a field called anthropology of food. And it sort of blew my mind that you could study a culture through the foods that they eat. And that resonated with me because that made sense the same way that food was a window into my own heritage, into my own culture. You know, food is a window to other people's lives. My family cooked a lot of the traditional dishes growing up, but I never really felt like I was part of the culture. When I was living in Syria, when I was doing my Fulbright there, people my age were shocked because I would use funny words that were like Arabic words from like my grandparents that nobody used anymore. Like one of them was the word for freezer. My grandmother calls it betel booz, which is literally ice box. The modern, <laughs> like Syrians today just call it thalajia, which is the modern word for freezer. And they would just like laugh. And like my taste in music was like the music my grandmother was listening to. My ultimate goal, and I shared this with my friends, is to go into a shop and have a very basic conversation and, and have the shop owner think that I'm from Aleppo. So we go into this uh, this juice shop. I ask, Amel Maruf Asir Bertan. And I just tried to keep it as simple as possible. I asked for uh, freshly squeezed orange juice. And the shop owner looks at me and he says, Bidekia Safari? And I froze and I look over at my friends and my friends are sort of, I could see them nudging it, making facial expressions for me to break down the root. Arabic is a root-based, it's a Semitic language, so it has a root, a very specific root structure that gives you an indication of what the word means. And I'm like, going back to my Arabic class in my head, safari, safari, uh, safara, and that root means flying, traveling. And I was like, what is going on? And then they all burst out laughing, and it's like, safari, do you want it to go? was a natural way, particularly Syrians and Aleppans who take such pride in their food, it was a natural way to connect uh, with the culture. And so for my Fulbright proposal, I uh, proposed doing an anthropological study of the midday meal, lunch. And I chose lunch in particular because that's the most important meal uh, in the day. But one thing that I chose that uh, I really wanted to do for my Fulbright in particular is I wanted to blog about it. I didn't want to write an academic research paper. And my thoughts on that one is I don't have this academic background. I took one course and I've read many books on anthropology of food. But what I really wanted to accomplish is have a conversation around food and a blog really allowed this social platform, you know, whereas in an academic paper, you write something, you publish it, and the conversation's over. I really wanted to have a continuous conversation around food where Syrians and non-Syrians could come to the platform and share their perspectives, that it's not just me uh, talking about these things. And so as soon as I, as soon as I got to the, got to Aleppo, you know, everyone talked about their research project, but as as soon as the locals 
saw that I was one saw that I was studying food their guard went down like it was very different like they they were so enthusiastic people just wanted to invite me to their homes they wanted to share their most interesting dishes what was funny is that an innocuous conversation that starts about food really went in all sorts of directions people talked about you know their love lives their politics their traditions their religion like so much is connected around food I never felt more foreign when I was invited over for lunch, and that's the main meal of the day in in Syria and across the Middle East. My host was preparing kebabs and a whole bunch of other meze. Uh, these are the small dishes that accompany a meal. And I knew the host would insist on me eating more, so I strategically, before I was even full, after I finished my first plate, I sort of said, oh, thank you so much, the food was delicious. And then she insisted, oh, please have more. And I said, oh, I absolutely can't, I'm so full, even though I knew I had room. And so she, we went back and forth, and then I finally agreed to have some more food, and I was pretty proud of myself. I thought I navigated that cultural moment appropriately. And then when I finished that plate, she insisted on me having more. And I was like, oh, no, this backfired on me. Uh, and so I started saying, oh, no, I'm really full this time. And she insisted some more. And I didn't know. I was running out of things to say. Uh, and so I said, oh, I, I already had seven kebabs. And the room fell silent. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what did I do? And then she's like, she laughs. And she said, it's a good thing. You know, we know you, but just as a heads up, if you're going to other people's houses, you should never count the number of things you ate. And she explained to me that counting your food gives the indication that you worry that their food is limited and that it might run out. And so... The hosts, hospitality is such an important part of the culture that they really want to give you a sense that the food is limitless, that there's an abundance of food that you could eat and the food will never run out. And so that was a very important cultural learning experience for me. It's not something you'd read in a book, uh, but it's like these little cultural tidbits, nuggets that you carry with you and you sort of appreciate the culture on a different level. I wrote about this, I called this the Syrian hospitality waltz. There's little tidbits that, like I said, not things you'd necessarily find in a book. Syrians have this way of like their hellos drag on for a really long time, their goodbyes drag on for a really long time. And when I got there originally, I was one confused. It was very difficult for me to navigate these like customs. But then the other part of me started recognizing the value in participating in these quote-unquote pleasantries. What we, what I saw as a pleasantry was some of the social glue that brought people together. In Arabic, they have this term called wajib, meaning duty. You know, if somebody's sick, it's not like, do you want to visit them and see how they're doing? They consider it wajib. They consider it a duty. When you frame it from that perspective, that's something that I learned is important and something that I knew existed beforehand, but I really didn't appreciate 
the complexity of that hospitality, um, the complexity of that like sort of commitment you make to your friends and your community and your loved ones. I learned that that's very important and something that we shouldn't uh, sort of casually toss out in our culture. It was interesting. My host mom, when I got to Syria, was very confused about my project. She's like, why is, this, why is the US government paying you to come to study food? She was very suspicious from the beginning. And I had no, like I would explain to her that it's about cultural exchange and, and this was not making sense. She was, I, I sensed in her body language that she was suspicious. A few weeks into my project, I received this amazing email from a Syrian woman who left Syria when she was 18 and she moved to the US to Michigan. And she had lived there her whole life. She was in her maybe late 50s. And she had not been to Syria in decades and she wrote me a beautiful email about how reading my blog uh, brought back these wonderful memories of her childhood. And she said that her siblings are still in Syria, that if I ever needed anything, that I could reach out to them uh, for help. And I was like, perfect, I'll take this email and I share it with my host mom about why this project is important and how it connects people. And so I'm reading the email and as I'm like translating into in, from English to Arabic so that she could understand and I get to the part of her brothers and I'm still translating and then she stops me and then she goes, wait a second, is this Siham? And I was like, I, had, I didn't even remember the name of the person who sent me the email, so I scrolled down and I was like, what, how do you know this person? And she's like, oh yes, Siham, when she was a toddler, she lived in the same building that I moved into after I got married. And I was just like, my mind was blown. Uh, what a small world. And that just shows the uh, how something so small can bring a point home and, and make that connection. And from that point on, she was very enthusiastic about my project. So I think the biggest thing that I took with me and something that I continue to apply is that food is more than just calories. It's, you know, the the, pers the Syrian perspective of food is uh, very rich. It goes beyond just what's the quickest way to get food in my stomach. It's very time intensive and labor intensive. It's a lot of repetitive handwork. What I learned was in these traditional dishes, this was an opportunity for primarily women to get together and have conversations and for people to build communities. These matriarchs ran the household and they got together with their friends and, and, and nothing was individual. You cooked with your extended relatives, with your neighbors. The Mediterranean, the East Mediterranean is not unique in this. Like whether you're shaping dim sum or baking bread or rolling grape leaves, all this handwork is labor intensive, but it speaks to the social aspect of food. And what I've come to realize is that, you know, I read a study last week that in, in the US, every year, like the rates of depression and loneliness, people are so lonely. And when I look at at least our approach to food here in the US is, what is the quickest way I can get food on the table? And I understand like, it's a time crunch. We are uh, busier than we've ever been. And the value of a minute is 
increasingly expensive. And if I could spend a minute producing output that can make me more money versus a minute that I would be spending in a kitchen, it it makes sense that we sort of deprioritized food in the US. But I sort of like this research project has allowed me to take a step back and realize, have we optimized the wrong thing? We've changed our approach to food ever since we've been like an agriculture society for thousands of years. It has only changed in the last 40 years. My neighbor in Baltimore, she's 92 years old and she is sharp as a tack. She talks about the war like it was yesterday. And I was like, Ms. Ev, what war are you talking about? And she's like, oh, I'm talking about World War II, hon. And she has this amazing memory and she tells me stories. I, I remember walking out of my house one day and it was a holiday weekend. I meet her at, in front of her door and she's like, oh, hon, this is not the way Baltimore was before. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, this, this street resembles a, a mortuary. She's like, no one's out. No one talks to each other anymore. She's like, I used to know the entire neighborhood. Now I rarely know anyone. And I think this speaks to the way we've approached communities. One thing that I've tried to accomplish since coming back from my Fulbright is, I don't think we're gonna go back to a time when we're all farmers and we're like knowing everyone in our block. But one thing that I've tried to do in my personal life is prioritize some communal cooking and hanging out and building community in my own life with my own friends and and sharing that with uh, with people and so once a week my friends and I get together and we pick these very labor intensive meals and we just slow down we cook together and we talk and we take care of each other because that's what food is about you know feeding each other and it's beyond just calories that we're putting in our bodies it's a social experience a, a social experience Even while I was there, I remember people wanted to treat me and take me out places and they would say, do you want pizza? Do you want hamburgers? Because that was like the foreign cuisine that's like considered very high class and prestige. And I was like, no, I was like, you have such a rich culinary heritage. I want the kibiz. I want the uh, mashi, the stuffed vegetables. You know, I was a little scared uh, that I was seeing that while I was in Syria. In 2010, there was also an, uh, an uptick in year-round tomatoes and it was funny because the locals called these tomatoes what we see as a convenience being able to buy tomatoes year-round uh, they called them the winter tomatoes plastic tomatoes they had no flavor and so you have from the one perspective the globalization aspect that is changing the culinary scene in Syria but then the war brought on a lot of shortages you couldn't get access to a lot of uh, meat everything was became hyper local and in a way that sort of brought people back to their roots in terms of how food was prepared there wasn't a lot of abundance and so when it was tomato season you harvested these tomatoes and you preserved them when it was when you had leftover cucumbers or turnips or even lettuce they pickled lettuce so that it would last longer and i had something i had never seen before like uh, the variety of pickles the variety of lacto fermentation my host mom made her own vinegar not 
because it was, you know, you couldn't find vinegar because it was just a natural way to use up uh, old apples. Uh, I remember I don't like apples that are um, mushy. So I bit into one and it was like not very good and I was getting ready to throw it away. She stopped me. She's like, no, no, cut off the piece that you didn't, that you bit off. And then she just cut it up the rest into pieces and threw it in this jar with a whole bunch of fruit in there. And I was like, what is that? She's like, I'm making vinegar. And the vinegar was amazing. Obviously, I don't want to minimize the pain and hardship that war creates in a community, the sort of uh, not having water for many days in a row, electricity being cut off. But I also think that this rich culinary heritage uh, brings with it resilience. Um, people are able to tap into these traditional methods of preservation uh, to continue a culture. And if you look at the Syrian culture in general, like this is one of the, in the region in particular, Mesopotamia, like this is one of the longest continuous and continuously inhabited places in the world. And in order for that to be the case, there had to be a lot of resilience built into the community. And I think culinary heritage, uh, this very complex and very, uh, um, strong culinary heritage provides some of that. So Aleppo is this incredibly historic city dating back millennia. And in the center of the city is this fortress, the citadel, called the Citadel of Aleppo. And that dates back to at least 3000 BC. It's a really old castle, it has a moat. So it looks like a fortress out of Mario or something, out of a video game. They use it as a museum today. And it actually has a lot of sig historic significance. It's uh, believed that Abraham once milked his herd of sheep on this very hill where the citadel is, was built and distributed that milk to the poor. The Aramaic word for milk is halaba, which is where we get the Arabic name for Aleppo, halab. And so even the name Aleppo is steeped in culinary heritage. That's as a little aside. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to access the very top of the citadel at night so that I could take a long exposure shot of Aleppo. The problem is because they use it as a museum, they close at 4 p.m., not while it's still daylight out. And I really need the city to be dark to be to take this long exposure shot. So I go in the evening one day with my photography backpack, with all my gear, and I go up the stairs, like over the moat. I felt like I was in a video game. I reached these humongous doors with brass knockers and I'm like knocking. No, not joking, this old man opens the door and uh, he's asking me what I need and, and I open with, hi, and I'm, I'm an American student studying food in Syria. And like it has worked in so many other contexts, he sort of guard went down, he opened the door, invited me for coffee, and I was able to deliver my ask, which is, is it possible for me to go up to the top of the Citadel and take a picture? So he's making the coffee and he's like, are you scared of anything? And I was like, no, no, not scared. I'll just go take the picture and come right back down. And he's like, not even scared of God. And I realized uh, he must have been a very a pious man. And, and so I was like, oh, definitely scared of God. And so we had our coffee and he said, okay, uh, go, you could go take your picture and, and come back down. 
And I'm starting to walk and because the museum is not regularly open at night, it was not lit at all. I put my hand in front of my face and I couldn't see it. And I hear some birds flying in the, in the overhead. I don't know if it was bats or owls. And I came running down and I told Abraham, the gatekeeper, I was like, turns out I'm scared of a few things, God and owls <laughs> um, or bats, whatever those things were. And so he was, we had a good laugh about that. And he was kind enough where I was able to return with a, a friend of mine. And together, we both went up to the top of the uh, citadel and took this beautiful photo of Aleppo at night. I was selected to be a, an, a Fulbright alumni ambassador. So this is like a cohort of Fulbright alums. We were selected to go speak to members of Congress about our experience. I asked someone whether it would be appropriate for me to bring some food and they weren't sure they they were they were preferring I not do that. They weren't sure if we're allowed to feed members of Congress what the security implications would be. I figured what's the worst that could happen, they could say no and politely decline. And I remember we went to a series of meetings and I would talk about my experience, but then I would say, you know what, I could speak for hours about the endless people I met and, and the cultural connection we made over food. Uh, but I think it's valuable for us to have this in person, you know. There's a saying in Arabic, Bainatna Khubzumilah which literally translates into between us bread and salt. And what I like about that saying is that it, on the earlier point that food is more than just calories that we put in our bodies, this sort of the saying, this expression validates that. It sort of re refers to the bond that's made between people who share a meal. And so at the end of uh, one of the meetings, I, I offered to take out some Dibis utahine, which is the Middle Eastern version of peanut butter and jelly. And what I like about this snack, not only is it incredibly delicious that I went through six kilos of grape molasses when I was in Syria, but it sort of brings home the point that no matter how different two cultures can seem, there are threads that bring them together. And so I took this out and the uh, former U.S. ambassador to Senegal was in the room and she sort of got so excited. She raised her hand, stopped everyone, and she wanted to take a picture of this moment. Her reaction to this food is sort of why I got into this to begin with. That's the reaction I would have throughout my Fulbright experience when people shared a meal. Uh, not only were Syrians super excited to share uh, their meals with me, but as I continue on with that tradition and I share their food with people in the US, that's what I'm super, that's what I'm most proud of. And that's what I wish more people would have a opportunity to see friends, family, and everyone around me. It's given me tremendous context uh, because this is a very complicated region um, that has a lot of nuance. And so on the one hand, I feel very fortunate that I'm able to understand these uh, cultural differences and I'm able to share those experiences with my friends in the U.S. to share that broader picture of what this conflict means and what it means in the context of 
Syrian society. You know, on the other hand, I, I, it's incredibly frustrating too to turn on the news and only see this like narrative that this is historically a war-torn region that is destined to always be in conflict. And what one pet peeve that I have and one thing that I like to dispel is that, sure, the modern context of the Middle East is very rife with a lot of sectarianism, but that's not the history of the Middle East. The, this region has been around, people have been living in this area for millennia, and sectarian is sort of a small snapshot of the modern context of the Middle East. Like there's always been conflict when uh, there's war, but there's also been long stretches of peace in the Middle East where people coexisted in relative harmony. I don't want to paint a rosy picture either, but this sectarianism that we see today is not the only story that the Middle East has to share. And um, I'm fortunate to have experienced some of that, some of the uh, hospitality uh, that I picked up on on my uh, Fulbright. And it's something that I continue to share every day. I continue to write about it on social media. And like I going back to the earlier point as I think this is a great platform of all the negative things that ha that is associated with social media. This is at least a great platform to at least continue having a conversation, a global conversation with people about this very important part of the world. Oftentimes when we visit places, we are visiting as tourists and we navigate in the space but in a temporary status. We know that we're only going to be there for a week, two weeks. The Fulbright really allows people to have an experience of living in a space. And to me, you get a completely different perspective. And so to me, it's it's the accumulation of all these small stories that really make a full experience. I was visiting some Fulbright colleagues from Aleppo to, Dam I was going to Damascus from Aleppo. And remember, I have this fascination of like trying to blend in as a local. So I get into this, every opportunity I get to speak Arabic with a local, I get super excited and I try to pronounce things as naturally as I could. And this must have been like six months into my project. So at this point, I was feeling pretty confident. And I get in the taxi cab and I asked to, I, I mentioned the direction of where I'm planning on going. And just those few words, the, ca the cab driver asked me, halab? and asking me, are you from Aleppo? Uh, and I was just like super excited. And not only was I speaking Arabic well, but I was able to pass off as not a Syrian, but someone from Aleppo. So I was like finally picking up on those dialect nuances and pronunciation that really made me feel uh, like someone from Aleppo. Thirty-three is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name is Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. 
and our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Tony Tahan talked about his time as a Fulbright scholar in Syria, going from table to table and learning all about the culture. For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233 and leave us a nice review while you're at it. You can do that wherever you find your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks to Tony, not only for taking the time to visit and share his stories, but for actually bringing us some Middle Eastern peanut butter and jelly, which is every bit as delicious as he describes and which left us hungry for more, frankly. Tony's writing can be found at antoniotahan.com. That's A-N-T-O-N-I-O-T-A-H-H-A-N.com. Ana Maria Sinatine did the interview and I edited this segment. Featured music was Polycode and Red City Theme by Blue Dot Sessions. Released by Josh Woodward. Reminiscence by Jamie Evans. Fishing Around by the Lee Konitz Quartet. And Blukes Dues by Dick Wellstood and his Wallerite. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came. And the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time. Um, uh, dinner. Oh. Syrian. <laughs>